and welcome to the Plant School Podcast. I'm Rachel Tenney, and here we learn all about plants, how they work, how to care for them, and it's all taught in a way that anyone from beginner to expert can listen to, understand, and enjoy. So I hope that you will join me in Plant School. Hello and welcome to the Plant School Podcast. As you can see, I'm doing video podcasts again. We're gonna hopefully keep this for the majority of the episodes. And again, if you aren't a fan of video podcasts, that's fine. You can still listen to the audio. And just so you know, next week I am planning on doing another giveaway where I choose someone who has left an Apple review and I sponsor their next plant shopping trip. So I will either send you a gift card or find some other means to sponsor that trip for you just as a way to say thank you to you as a listener for supporting the Plant School podcast, which I do have a question regarding giveaways. So I pick them based off of Apple reviews, right? And I know that there's a lot of you, about 50% of you, that do like to watch or listen on Spotify. So my question is, how would you like to do giveaway winners? Because I know some of you are not able to leave Apple reviews. So if you're listening on Spotify, there is a little questionnaire box on this episode. If you kind of just scroll down, there will be a question box that you can answer to and it will ask something in the regards to ideas for how to do giveaways from here on out. Because I do want to open this up to everyone. Apple reviews have been a really easy way to do this before. I know I did it by you sharing the podcast with someone and you would reach out to me and tell me that you had shared it. So let me know what your thoughts are. Maybe we could go back to that old way of doing it. Maybe we could do a combination of both. I would love to hear from you and what you think so that more of you are able to enter. And before every episode, I also like to advocate for this podcast so that I can keep it going. So if you are able, there is a way to become a podcast sponsor for this particular podcast. So if you scroll down into my show notes, there is a link there. It says support this podcast. And if you click on the link right there, a pop-up will come up where you can support this podcast by donating a dollar every month, $5 every month, or $10 every month. You can stop it at any time, but if you sign up to become a sponsor, it really helps the longevity of Plant School. So if you enjoy this podcast, if you would like to keep it going, I would really appreciate you considering becoming a sponsor. Or if you'd like to support it in another way, I also have a Plant School merch shop, which is also in the show notes. And you can buy something like this shirt. I'm wearing it actually right now. It says Plant School. And then on the back, I'll show you guys who are watching. Let's see. I'm just going to have to flip all the way around. Can you see it? has all these plants on the back, all these house plants. So if you would like to support the podcast that way, that's great too. You can purchase something. And then as always, leaving reviews or sharing it with friends does also help the podcast, of course. All right, now that my spiel is done, I would like to dive into this episode and we are doing a woman in botany episode which I love these. It's been so long since we've done one. So I hope you guys enjoy this as much as I did. And if I keep looking off screen throughout this podcast, I'm just checking my baby monitor because a little one is struggling to fall asleep right now. And I am just making sure 
that everything's okay. I'll try and keep that to a minimum for anyone that is watching. All right, so to start off, we are covering a botanist. Her name is Emma Lucy Braun. And the first question, of course, is, well, who is she? She's an influential American botanist, ecologist, and taxonomist known for her extensive work on the flora of the eastern United States. I'm kind of breaking my barrier because I know I've done a lot of women in botany episodes and they've primarily been in California. I don't know why I kept choosing Californian botanists, but we're breaking away from that. We're going over to the eastern U.S. And perhaps the next botanist will be outside of the U.S. because I know I do have quite a few international listeners, so we need to break out of that mold too. So it's kind of a brief overview of who Emma Lucy Braun is besides just being a botanist, ecologist, and taxonomist. Her dedication to the study of plants and ecosystems and her really meticulous field work that she did and all of her contributions established her as a really prominent figure in American botany. And her research continues to be highly regarded and her impact on this particular field that she was a part of continues to this day. Her influence is still felt. And also, I wanted to throw in that she was actually an environmentalist before the term was popularized. No one really described themselves as being an environmentalist, but Lucy Braun really was. By the way, her name is Emma Lucy Braun, but she loved to go by Lucy, not Emma. So that's how I'm going to be referring to her as Lucy Braun. So let's start with Lucy's early life. She was born on April 19th in 1889 in Cincinnati, Ohio. She grew up in a family that really fostered her interest in nature and science, and so she grew up with a deep appreciation for the natural world. Her parents were George Frederick, who was a principal, and her mother, Emma Mariah Braun, who was a school teacher often took their daughters, Lucy and her older sister, Annette, on walks into the woods, and they loved to identify wildflowers. Lucy's mom even had a small herbarium, and honestly, this kind of seems to be a continuing theme with any botanist that I have covered so far, is that their parents really had an important role in this in encouraging them and setting that foundation in a love of nature. So for all you parents out there, don't doubt the influence that you can have on your kids, apparently, because it can propel them into their careers. Moving on to Lucy's education. So in high school, she began collecting plants just to study them. It was the start of her own huge personal herbarium that she would end up assembling throughout her entire life. And by the end of her life, which she lived into her 80s, it consisted of 11,891 specimens. And her collection is now part of the herbarium at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. And to kind of show you how impressive this is, I did some math. So let's say that she started gathering plants for her herbarium at age 12. And she had about 70 years of plant collecting to get to that number that she ended at of 11,891. So that means that she collected about 170 plants every single year. That's basically one plant a day for 
about half the year. You can take half the year off if you are finding one a day. But still, that's an incredible dedication to simply collecting plants and putting them into a herbarium. And if you're listening and you aren't sure what a herbarium is, it is simply a collection of dried plants that systematically arranged. It's those pressed plants that you might see scientists using. They take certain parts of the plant so that you can easily identify them, whether it's the flower, the fruit, and they are pressed and put on sheets, glued onto sheets usually, and marked of where they're found, usually the exact coordinates if possible, and the name of the plant, who found it, things like that. And it's used to have quick access for all these different plants. It's used for students, researchers, and even the general public can come in for either research purposes or educational purposes and use the herbarium. The largest herbarium is located in the Natural History Museum in Paris, France, with about 9 million specimens. And the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew is in second place for how many specimens they have. And then in third, the New York Botanical Garden follows pretty closely behind Kew Garden. I know that most universities have herbariums and they swap out plants. They'll send them to different universities and other universities will send them back. It's like a big loaning system that they have. And so I know that the university I went to we got to look at the herbarium and all the different plants that they had. It's really amazing to see them and all the specimens that have been collected over the years. Some can range to being very old. So if you have a large university nearby, it might be kind of fun to go to the herbarium and check it out. Going back to Lucy, she attended the University of Cincinnati and studied botany and geology. She earned her bachelor's degree in 1910, and she earned a master's degree in geology in 1912, and got her PhD in botany in 1914. And while she was still in school, she worked as an assistant in geology and as an assistant in botany. She was actually the sixth woman to earn a PhD from the University of Cincinnati. And her sister, Annette, was the very first one to get her PhD from the University of Cincinnati. What a freaking power couple of sisters coming out of the University of Cincinnati. And it was during her studies that Lucy Braun's curiosity and love for plants truly blossomed. She did have that upbringing that really ignited it in her, but it started to really take off in her university years. So Lucy continued as a faculty member at the University of Cincinnati, where she advanced through titles of instructor, assistant professor, and associate professor. She taught botany and eventually achieved full professorship of plant ecology in 1946. And that was two years before she retired and nearly 38 years after starting there as a student. So... If you're like me, you might be wondering why the heck did it take so long for her to become a full-fledged professor? Like two years before she retires? And she had been there for that long? Almost 40 years she had been there? And perhaps there were personal reasons. Nothing is stated in the research that I did of why it took so long. 
But I do know that females in the field of science, it has kind of been a slow process to get them where men have been. For example, the first ever female professor was in 1732 at the University of Bologna in Italy. That sounds like a joke. Honestly, as I was researching, I'm like, that sounds like a joke. The first female professor was at the University of Bologna. Is this a real university? I assume it is. It's Italy. I've never been. I'm not sure how they name their universities out there. But that one, to me, sounds a bit like someone made it a joke. But anyways, in the late 1600s, the Catholic Church would actually intervene if a woman tried to get higher education and bar them from doing so. They didn't think it was appropriate. Moving a little bit later in 1837, Oberlin College, which is in Ohio, same place that Lucy Braun was around, they opened its doors to women and it didn't exactly treat them equally in the beginning. They would actually dismiss their female students early from class on Mondays so that they would have time to do the male students' laundry. Fun. I'm so glad that I am not a woman in the 1800s. That is all I can say. But obviously things got better over time in slow steps, but still by the time Lucy Braun was coming along in the early 1900s, she was still very much a pioneer of her time. And perhaps this is why it took so long for her to get the title of being a full professor. But during her time as a professor, she did have 13 master students and one PH student that she guided and looked over, nine of which were women. In this time, mentorship of graduate students was very uncommon for female professors. It was something that only male professors would take on. She held the title of Professor Emeritus of Plant Ecology from the time that she retired until her death. So they did honor her in that way. Perhaps they felt bad for taking so long to make her professor. I don't know. Let's move into some of the accomplishments that Lucy Braun achieved during these years because she was doing a lot of research while also working at the University of Cincinnati. Primarily, her research focused on the studies of forest, prairies, and plant communities with a particular emphasis on the ecological relationships between plants. Basically, she studied how these plants work together in an ecosystem. She was particularly interested in comparing the present structure of the plant community of southern Ohio with that of the past. She studied relatively recent changes in the plant community by comparing early plant surveys of Ohio and Kentucky with those of her era. So these surveys were done every so often and she would take those records and compare what she was seeing and that's what her research was that's what she was writing about and this was actually something that had never been done before so her colleagues were very impressed by her innovation for the potential that it held for monitoring plant communities affected by human development she conducted extensive field work throughout the eastern united states documenting and studying the plant species and their habitats, 
And this area of doing field work is where Lucy was most active in her career, both during her active professorship as well as into her retirement. This is something else I've noticed about every botanist that we have studied together is that they don't stop when they retire. They just keep going. It's truly a love for them that they, I guess, just can't leave it alone once they're retired, which makes sense. Why not keep studying something that you love? You probably have those questions still going through your mind. You want to know the answers to. So I can see it. It's really admirable to me that they're not off, I don't know, sitting on a beach golfing. They just couldn't leave the science alone. And I love that. No shame to anybody who wants to spend retirement golfing or sitting on a beach because that sounds lovely too, okay? So during this time of going around and doing her field work, it's estimated that she traveled over 6,500 miles in her 25 years of investigations. Most of it driving her own car. That many miles, that's like driving from one side of the U.S. to the other about 22 times. It's a massive amount of driving just to be doing field work. And a lot of this research and field work was done in Adams County, Ohio, which is near Cincinnati, and also in the eastern United States. Her sister Annette was also traveling with her. They made about 13 trips out to the western side of the U.S., so they didn't always stay in the eastern United States. But I want to talk about her and her sister because I have already called them a power couple for, you know, getting PhDs from University of Cincinnati and being some of the very first females to do, but they continue to impress me. So Annette was an entomologist and she specifically studied microlepidoptera, which are micro moths. And she had a special interest in leaf miners. If you don't know what leaf miners are, they're like little bugs that mine their way into leaves. Imagine that. It kind of already told you in the name. But if you look at, oh, what are they right now? I think it's Siberian elms right now. You have a good chance of finding leaf miners in those leaves because they love those trees. And those trees are everywhere. They're kind of a weed problem almost. But if you find one of those, you see holes in the leaves, you can pick some off and look really closely and you'll see it almost looks like a little worm going through the leaf. It's a leaf miner. And this is the kind of stuff that Annette was interested in. So some days, these sisters would go out together and they would walk as many as 24 miles a day over really rough terrain. That's crazy. I feel like I pitter out by like walking two miles with a stroller. <laughs> and these ladies are out there hiking around for 24 miles. So already amazing in my book. And Lucy would be taking pictures in color of the flora to display in her lectures to her students and also to the public. She was doing this along with the research that she was conducting. And the sisters would love to visit the hills of Kentucky, sometimes explore areas known for their moon shining because this was the prohibition period, wasn't allowed to have alcohol. And so there were a lot of moonshiners around in the country areas. The locals were actually very suspicious of these girls going around looking at plants. They thought perhaps they had other motives, but 
The sisters proved to maintain the trust of the locals. They would not report their illegal alcohol activities. And the locals started to refer to them as the plant ladies and would actually help them out by sending them to areas that they knew had different sort of plants or different sorts of insects that Annette might be interested in. And so it was kind of an endearing term to have these plant ladies walking around their town. These two sisters, obviously, from what I've told you about them, you can probably see that they seemed very close. And they also even shared a home together. They had a laboratory and experimental garden at their home. And I can imagine that they did most everything together. And during their time exploring as sisters and scientists, they did have some favorite spots, which were the still virgin timber in remote southeastern Kentucky and Tennessee. And by virgin timber, I simply mean that it was untouched by human logging activities. No one had really gone in there and tried to destroy any part of this. There's actually a talk that Lucy gave to the Garden Club of Kentucky. It was called Save the Big Trees. I just want to read a little excerpt from that. She said, Nowhere in the whole world is there equal in beauty and magnificence of our eastern deciduous forest. It is unexcelled. And in Kentucky and Tennessee, this deciduous forest reached its superlative development. I even have a book that talks about Lucy because I went to the library today and got a bunch of books that either she had written or that she was in. But anyways, I want to show you guys this picture for anyone on the video podcast of her exploring in these forests. She's the one in the middle. It shows her in one of those deciduous forests that she so loved. I'm going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, I'm going to continue into her life and talk about the book that she wrote that kind of propelled her into the fame that has continued to this day. Okay, I am back and ready to continue to dive into Lucy Braun's life. So over the course of her career, Lucy Braun wrote four books and published 180 articles in over 20 journals. Braun's most notable work is titled Deciduous Forests of Eastern North America. It was published in 1950. I actually have it with me right here because I did mention I went to the library and picked up some of her books. So here is her most notable book, Deciduous Forests of Eastern North America. I don't know about you guys, but anytime I go to the library and go through the botanical section, I just want to take every book that is in there. They all just look so fun. And no, I don't have time to read all of them. A lot of them are field guides, but I love field guides. Someone has got to feel the same way as me, right? Anyways, her book describes really thoroughly the plants of the deciduous forest biome and the evolution of the forest community from the most recent ice age to the middle of the 20th century that she was living in. Unfortunately, Many of the forests that she described and recorded in this book have been destroyed by logging practices. So she actually wrote an article about one of these areas that was covered in her book. It's called Lynn Fork of Leatherwood. And she wrote it for Nature Magazine in 1936. And these forests, not only were they beautiful, 
but they had a lot of diversity within this area. And it also contained the largest tulip tree in North America that has ever been recorded. And this is an excerpt with some of her feelings towards this big tulip tree in Lynn Fork of Leatherwood. She says, Such monarchs of the forest are not grown in decades, nor yet in centuries. Few but the mountain folk had ever seen it, even knew of its existence. If the people of this nation loved and revered this splendid tree, as do those mountain people, its safety would be assured. It would not as now be threatened with destruction, as is all this splendid forest. Only through the gifts of public-spirited, nature-loving citizens can it be saved. Unfortunately, despite her pleas and her writings, Lynn Fork was logged. It like hurts my heart to say that this beautiful place that Lucy Braun knew so well and could see its magnificence was destroyed. It was logged in the late 1930s, which she wrote that article that I just read you a piece of in 1936. So it wasn't too long after she wrote that article that it was logged. And then it was logged again in the 1940s. And then again in 1992. So now today, I don't think it's been logged recently. It holds small tulip trees. And it's honestly a far cry away from how it was when Lucy Braun knew it with these huge giants of tulip trees in this forest. But going back to her book, The Deciduous Forest of Eastern Amer of Eastern North America, reading it off of the faded spine right now. It became a key work in the field of plant ecology. It really shed a lot of light on the dynamics of plant communities. Her book also highlighted the impact of human activities on the ecosystem, and this was an area of research that was way ahead of its time. No one was really looking into this yet. I don't think there were a lot of people worried about what we were doing to our natural environments and what effects that might have, but Lucy Braun was. And so her insights into the effects of deforestation and land use really laid the groundwork for modern conservation efforts that we know today. Francis Fosberg, who is a botanist, he said of her book, one can only say that it is a definitive work and that it has reached a level of excellence seldom or never before attained in American ecology or vegetation science, at least in any work of comparable importance. And then the Cranbrook Institute of Science said, this about the book. They said, it is no doubt one of the most important books published in this field. A lot of really high praise for this, and it has brought her lasting fame. This is kind of what propelled her career, propelled a lot of awards that she got, was her writing this book and all of the research that went into it. Outside of this book, she was doing other work, in the 1920s and in the 1930s, she did a lot of taxonomical work, which included a new catalog of the flora in the Cincinnati area with a comparison to the flora of a hundred years prior. And she actually described and named numerous plant taxa, particularly in the Rosaceae family, and her taxonomic expertise 
really helped our understanding of eastern North American flora because she did describe so many of them. And pivoting to some of the awards and some of the organizations that she was a part of, she was an active member of the Ecological Society of America, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and the Tory Botanical Society. And being a prominent female botanist in a very male-dominated field, she was breaking barriers, she paved the way for future generations of women scientists, and in 1950, she even became the first and only ever female president of the Ecological Society of America. And if we look at her impact on the scientific community as a whole, there is a big effect that she had on this community. Emma Lucy Braun's research and publications really shaped the understanding of Eastern North American forests and their ecosystems. She founded the Cincinnati chapter of the Wildflower Preservation Society in 1924, which still continues to this day. And her emphasis that she had throughout her career of long-term field observations, you know, looking at the past, comparing it to the future, and this really holistic approach to studying plant communities is now how modern ecological research today is conducted. So the research going on today is heavily influenced by what she was doing because they are copying what she did. It was a very effective method. And something else that she did, and this is more specific, not something so broad, but she pushed to protect this 22-acre Zarek Limestone Prairie in Adams County, Ohio. Adams County, Ohio is just off of Cincinnati. She wanted to protect this prairie, which led to the establishment of the Appalachia Preserve System, and later this led to the creation of the Nature Conservancy. And the Nature Conservancy is a global environmental organization with headquarters in Arlington, Virginia, it has branches in 79 countries and territories, and they also have branches in every U.S. state. It's a huge global conservancy program, has over 1 million members in it. It's protected over 119 million acres of land so far. And as of 2014, it's the largest environmental nonprofit organization. And it all has roots to back when Lucy Braun was advocating for this prairie. And speaking of this prairie, it's called Lynx Prairie. Now I believe it's called the E. Lucy Braun Prairie, but it's a really cool place. So I want to talk about it because it harbors rare prairie species surrounded by these forests of cedar glades on all sides. And it was created by this limestone bedrock being really close to the surface. And so it had a very shallow layer of rough soil. Trees couldn't really do well in it, but the short grasses could, as well as those eastern red cedars. So that's what was making up the cedar glade. And then it would have these large prairie areas, which weren't super normal to this area of Ohio. This area normally would have just been completely taken over by shrubs, but there is evidence that Native Americans started fires to do controlled burns in order to keep this area as a prairie. They wanted it to stay as a prairie because it attracted big game. They would come in and graze. The Native Americans could then hunt those animals that were coming in. So burning the prairie 
in a controlled burn was very beneficial. And it actually continues to this day. The Nature Conservancy comes in and does those controlled burns to keep the area the way it has been for years and years. There are a lot of rare plants within it, as I mentioned. This includes the American Blue Hearts, Rattlesnake Master, Crested Coral Root, Glade Crest, Scaly Blazing Star, and Texas Rock Sandwort. There's actually been over 600 species recorded on the preserve, and Lucy would often take her classes here to study, and it took her until 1960 to persuade the Ohio chapter of the Nature Conservancy to purchase the prairie and to protect it. Today, it exists as a 10,500 acres, and it's the largest preserve in Ohio. And you can actually visit it. There's about 1.9 miles of trail loops. I looked it up, and it comes up with a all trails page. You know, if any of you are hikers, I'm sure you know what all trails is. But it's like an app, and it exists as a website too. But you can find different trails to go hiking on, and you can rate the trails, give it a, you know, one to five star rating, and leave comments, leave pictures, whatever. So I looked at the all trails. It has a 3.5 star rating, and the people leaving reviews kind of have missed the mark. They don't know the whole history of it. How could you, when you're, you know, living your life, just doing your thing? It's really hard to know everything about specific areas, right? But they did not appreciate the ecology and the rareness of this prairie and what was in it. People on all trails leaving reviews, not a vibe, according to me. You guys need to study Lucy Braun and then you will see how lovely and beautiful it is. Or maybe the people who appreciate it just aren't leaving reviews on all trails. But if you are in the area of Ohio, it's about one and a half hours away from Cincinnati, you should go hike this trail. Go visit the E. Lucy Braun Prairie and maybe hike around. Leave a good rating. If I ever make my way over there, we could get a group together to go hike this thing. But moving on to her later life, Lucy Braun was actually inducted into the Ohio Conservation Hall of Fame in 1971. Near the end of her life, she was put into the Hall of Fame. And as a whole, Lucy Braun is considered one of the most original thinkers in North American plant ecology from the first half of the 20th century. And like I mentioned multiple times during this episode, her work has inspired people. It remains influential in how the preservation of natural environments works today. We're kind of copying how she did her work when she was around. And She's even remembered in the names of four plants that have been named since she's passed. A lot of them include the name Bronii in the plant's names. I would go through them all, but I know I'm going to have trouble pronouncing them all. I'm not sure what value it's going to be for me to tell you them. You can look them up if you want. But a lot of them have the name Bronii in the name to honor Lucy Braun. But at the end of her life, when she was age 80, she was still leading people on field trips in Ohio and taking them around and showing them the diversity and ecology of the area. She did die on March 5th, 1971, at her and her sister's home, her sister Annette. And she was 81. She died from congestive heart failure. 
She is buried in Cincinnati with her parents and her sister in Spring Grove Cemetery. And I do want to end this episode with a quote from the one and only Lucy Braun. She said, Only through close and reverent examination of nature can humans understand and protect its beauties and wonders. And I hope that you go out and closely examine nature and are empowered by Lucy's example to not only enjoy it, but also to protect it. Thank you so much for listening to the Plant School podcast. I hope that you will join me in two weeks for a brand new episode. Thank you so much for being here and for listening to the Plant School podcast. I hope that you will join me for our next episode. And if you would like to support this podcast and keep it going, there's a link down in the show notes of this episode where you can donate to this podcast. And I really appreciate all that help. Or you can go to my merch store, which is also linked in the notes of this episode. And you can find some really cool plant-related shirts and stickers. And if you want to support the podcast but spend no money, feel free to share it with a friend, leave a review. All these things greatly help me out and allow me to keep doing this. Again, thank you so much for listening and for being here at the Plant School Podcast.